You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. So there's a popular movie term I'm sure you've all heard before, the blockbuster, right? Raise your hand if you've heard that phrase, the blockbuster. I'm not talking about the defunct video rental store. Rest in peace. I have a lot of memories there at Blockbuster. No, uh, but the, the blockbuster movie. Right? Well, what, what's a blockbuster movie? Well, the, the phrase to call a movie a blockbuster has its origins in World War II reports of bombs that would would destroy entire city blocks. They were called blockbuster bombs. But as early as the 1950s, that phrase, blockbuster, started being used to describe events, including movies, that had a large impact on a culture. So a blockbuster movie is one that's widely seen, makes a bunch of money at the box office, the story has a little bit of something for everyone. There's some, some action, there's some drama, there's romance, there's plot twists, right? You could probably think of some in your mind. Avatar, Titanic, Avengers, Jurassic Park, right? Back to the Future. Those are, those are all blockbuster movies. They're big, huge movies. Well, this morning we're beginning this study, this new sermon series through a new book, the book of Esther. And though the the blockbuster is not an official uh, genre of Old Testament literature, uh, Esther is very much like a blockbuster in the Old Testament. In fact, Esther, along with books like Exodus or stories like Samson and Delilah, is one of those stories that has been made multiple times into movies. The story has a a bit of everything. Got a real nasty villain, has a, a hero, has a heroine. There's beauty, there's feasting, there's death, there's injustice, there's struggle, there's this crisis and then resolution that we see in blockbuster movies and stories, and there are major plot twists. Now the book moves rather quickly. I don't know if you've sat down and read it straight through before, but it's only 10 chapters long, and chapter 10 is only three verses. It takes about 30 minutes to just sit down and read straight through the book of Esther. It's a small book, but has huge impact on the people of God. It has huge impact not only on the original audience of the Jews who would have been reading this story, but also on us today. And so before we jump into to chapter 1, we're going to try and cover all of chapter 1 today, but before we do that, it's going to be helpful for us to, as we're starting a new book, to understand some, some background here. The, the story of Esther takes place in a very dark time for the people of God. It's a very difficult season. The location of God's people uh, at this time, especially in this story, is not Jerusalem. It's not in the promised land. But it's in Susa, which is one of four capitals of the Persian Empire. And they're not under the authority of an Israelite king, but they're under the authority of King Ahasuerus. Or, some of your translations may say Xerxes. You can pick which one. Which one's easier to say? Xerxes, I'll probably say Ahasuerus. By the way, Sam, great job with the pronunciations, right? But Ahasuerus and Xerxes are the same person. 
And here's, here's what's happening. Not everyone has returned to Jerusalem from Babylonian captivity, which you read about in Ezra and Nehemiah. God's people were um, taken captive in Babylon because of their sin. That's judgment of God. But then they start to return. That's what we see in Ezra and Nehemiah. But not everybody goes back. Many Jews are scattered all throughout different regions, including this community in this Persian capital of Susa. So they're living as God's people, but they're in a land that's not their home. They're living as God's people, but they're under the authority of a pagan king who does not acknowledge God in in any way. And as we'll later see as we go on through the series, uh, in chapter 3, the Jews then receive a sentence of death because of a, a wicked man, the villain, Haman. A man in the king's court, essentially his prime minister. And so, when we enter into Esther, we see a group of God's people who are very discouraged. They seem hopeless as they look around at the scenario. They're away from their home, they're seemingly away from their God, and they're wondering, here's what they're wondering, has God forgotten his promises to us? Right? Now, there are five main characters of, of the book. There is Haman, who I just mentioned. Uh, Haman is uh, the obvious villain. He absolutely hates God's people. This starts with uh, him hating Mordecai. He's full of pride and vanity. And he's essentially, again, he's like the, the right-hand man to King Ahasuerus. And he, he's trying to use his power to selfish gain. Then we have King Ahasuerus. This is who we'll meet, uh, get a profile of this morning in chapter 1. And Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, reigned as king of Persia for about 25 years. There's a lot of history outside of the Bible written about him before he was assassinated in 465 B.C., which is about a decade after the events of this story here. And here's what we learn about Ahasuerus. He's, he's quick to anger. Right? He's got an anger problem. He has a major drinking problem. He's, he's given to, to selfish indulgence and the abuse of power. That's the king over Persia, over Susa, and over God's people. Then we have Mordecai. Mordecai is an Israelite who, in his kindness adopts his orphaned cousin Hadassah, whose name is changed to Esther when she enters the king's courts, and becomes an advisor to her. And what what Mordecai does is incredible. He ends up foiling a plot to kill King Ahasuerus. And and because of that, God providentially works to, to, to bring him in the good graces of Ahasuerus. And through Mordecai's planning and 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 wisdom He rescues the Jewish people, him and Esther together, from this edict of death that Haman brings about. Then there is, the one we've all been waiting for, there's Esther. Esther's the heroine of the story. The book has her her name's sake. And her rise to power really is like a Cinderella story. She's an orphaned Jewish girl who then becomes, through a, a turn of events, she becomes the queen of Persia. She's not Persian, she's Jewish. She's not rich, she's orphaned. She's, she's seemingly an outcast, right? But she becomes the queen of the known world at the time in a crucial time. And Esther shows great bravery and willingness to risk her life in the presence of a king who's prone to abuse his power. 
Right? Those, are the, those are the four main human characters. But I would say none of those are the main character. Right? The main character is this fifth one. And that is Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, if you're reading Esther, if you've ever sat down and read the book, this might be surprising to you for this reason. The name of God is not mentioned once through this whole book. In fact, I was in the early days of considering the canon, that was a, a struggle. Is this really about God? But as we'll see this morning, and as I believe we'll see every single week, God is clearly at work here. He is clearly the main character orchestrating this story. And this is, I would say, this is the, the plot twist in the book of Esther, if you will. And it's a, it's a profound truth for the people of, in Susa and those who would be later reading this. And for any person, any follower of God who is prone to doubt God's goodness and wonder if they've been forgotten because they can't see him. Even when it seems that God is absent, he's working. That's the theme of, of Esther. Even when it seems that God is distant, he is near. Matthew Henry comments on this. He says, though the name of God is not in this book, the finger of God is directing many mighty events for the bringing about of his people's deliverance. So that's a little bit of background. Right now as we come to chapter 1, we're only going to meet one of these main human characters, King Ahasuerus. And what we're doing this morning as we start this book is we're, we're entering into the world of Susa. Okay? And it's a pretty bleak picture. The, the world of this capital city, Susa, of Persia, is not friendly to the people of God. It's a world of, maybe you heard it during the reading, it's a world of pride, not humility. It's a world that pursues earthly pleasure, not delight in God. And it is a world that is prone to abuse power instead of using it for good. Does that sound familiar? Pride, hedonistic pursuits of pleasure, abuse of power, denial of God, right? So even in thinking through those descriptions, you see the relevance of Esther for our day. Yet, in all of this, just like in our world, it's a world where God is providentially working. He's not absent. Right? Now, so if you're, if you're a note taker, there's four observations that we're going to see here. Number one, pride, verses one through four. Number two, pleasure, verses five through nine. Number three, power, verses 10 through 21. And then number four, providence. Pride, pleasure, power, and providence. And here's the question that you and I want to be asking as we're looking at this chapter this morning, but also as we're walking through this whole book. The question is this, do you see God's hand at work in this messy world, in your messy world as well? Right? So number one, as we enter into the book of Esther, we enter into a world of pride. Let's look at verse one again. Now in the days of King Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of the reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. Here's what we learn right off the bat from this king. He loves to party, right? So that's how the book starts. A massive feast, verse 4 tells us, six months long. 
Now, historically, there's, there's historical evidence that shows uh, not only that this happened, but what this was. This actually lines up with the Persians, Persians under the reign of Ahasuerus preparing to invade Greece, which he would do a few years after this event. So you, it kind of gives you a, a picture of what kind of party this was. This wasn't just like, hey, let's have a rager in my backyard. Right? There's political intention here. The king's he's gathering all of his subjects under 127 different provinces, leaders, representatives, political leaders, and then he's showing off his great military power in order to sort of have them re-up their loyalty so he can go and invade Greece. That's what's sort of going on in the background here. And verse 4 really sums up his aim. He showed the riches of his royal glory. In the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. What is he doing? He's showing off. King Ahasuerus is a man of great pride. And as we'll see on throughout the rest of the chapter in the story, he's not concerned primarily for the good of his people. He's concerned with the exaltation of himself. There's an archaeological discovery in Persepolis, which was... Uh, a second capital of Persia at the time. There were four. Susa was one. Persepolis was another. And it uncovered this following quote etched in stone from Ahasuerus, also known as Xerxes. This is how we know what he thought of himself. He says, I'm Xerxes, the great king, the only king, the king of all countries which speak all kinds of language, the king of this entire big, far-reaching earth. Translation, I'm Xerxes. I'm kind of a big deal right? Not a humble man. Now, just, just imagine this, being a follower of God, an Israelite, in this setting. This is the king you're under. The Israelite kings were to be humble. They were to be servants who, who led the nation in exalting the one true God. And instead, the Jews in Susa are subject to a prideful king who could care less about them and who could care less about Yahweh. You can understand how discouraging that would be, right? And friends, something's never changed. We, we too live in a world dominated by pride. Think of the most prominent leaders alive right now. I'm not going to name any names. We really don't have to, right? Not all of them, but most of them are likely to be prideful and self-exalting. Edgar Schein was, is a professor emeritus at MIT Sloan School of Management, and he's an expert in leadership and culture. He writes a lot about humility and leadership, and he once asked a group of his students what it means to be promoted to the rank of manager, and they said without hesitation, it means I can tell others what to do, right? That's Xerxes. I'm king. It's all about me. I can do what I want. It's a world of pride, a leader full of pride. This is the opposite of what God calls us to. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. It's better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. Or the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. It's the opposite of King Ahasuerus. That's the opposite of the culture in Susa and Persia at the time. 
Now, it's easy, I think, to, when we see this, to, to pick on people like Ahasuerus or, or maybe names come to our mind of leaders in our world when we think of pride. But just remember, whenever the scripture gives you a picture like this, it's meant to be held up as a mirror to our own lives and our own hearts, right? We too are, are prideful. No, we, you may not throw parties for people to come and observe your greatness, right? You may not etch your accolades in stone. There's, there's certain ways you and I are tempted to regularly exalt ourselves above others, whether it's when we're easily offended by someone, someone interrupts our plans or our me time, we're impatient with the kids, we're, we're, we're easily annoyed by that coworker. we have a hard time admitting when we're wrong. The reality is, if we're going to say, where do we see pride in our world, we not only see it in Persia, we not only see it in our world around us, we see it in our own lives, right? It's a mess. <laughs> it's a mess of pride. But also, as we, we read on, we also into, enter into a world of earthly pleasures. That's number two. A world of earthly pleasures. Verse 5 says, And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. So the king is giving an end-of-feast feast, right? The six months of celebration was over, and now let's sort of give it one last go with another feast for a week. Verse 6, there were white cotton curtains, violent and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple and silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And, the, and drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. And Queen Vashti also gave a feast in the, to, for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. Now this makes sense logically if you are uh, someone who is driven by your own pride that you would also be driven to the pursuit of earthly pleasures above all things, right? And that's what King Ahasuerus is. If you're saying, okay, life is all about me and I should be able to experience the greatness of all earthly pleasures, that's what I'm going to do, right? After all, I'm the center. And, and we see this in the explanation of the king's feast. These four verses describing the extravagance of this party compared to, do you notice verse 9? Queen Vashti's feast? It's like, yeah, and she had a feast too. But it was nothing compared to, to King Ahasuerus. It wasn't even in her own palace. It was in King Ahasuerus' palace. Right? So we see great excess and in indulgence in Susa. He's indulging in, in feasting, the pleasure of food. Verse 5, he's, he's indulging in, in wealth, the pleasure of money and material possessions in verses 6 and 7. Beauty of these things. Drinking, the pleasure of alcohol, verse 7. And friends, this isn't, don't misunderstand, the Bible is very clear that there is a time for feasting. This is not a good feast that acknowledges the good things of God's creation. This is overindulgence, not moderation. That's what's being described here. And we understand this, don't we? We see the, the lure of worldly pleasure and materialism. And, you know, we understand what it's like at times to look around us and feel like we, we don't have enough and that things would be better if we just had more. Well, if you've been there, friends, and 
That's exactly what the Israelites in Susa thought. They were not a part of this. They weren't a part of these feasts. They're they're off in the distance, watching a a pagan king live it up while they're far from their home in Jerusalem, wondering if God's abandoned them. They're seeing the wicked prosper. And I imagine being tempted to say, man, if I could just have some of that. Now, I wonder if you've been in a similar situation, right? You're living your life trying to to follow Christ, and things are difficult because Christ never promised ease. But you look around you, and you see people who could care less about God, but they seem to have an abundance of earthly pleasures. And you think, has God forgotten me? Friends, if that's you then you are beginning to understand the context of Esther. Jesus speaks to this tendency that we all have. And he gives us a better way to think of earthly pleasures. In Luke chapter 12, he says this, verse 15, And he said to them, his disciples, Take care and be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought of himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. That's Xerxes, right? But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. See, Jesus says, friends, the world allures you into thinking that you need this or need that to be satisfied. But it is nothing if you are not rich towards God. All of those things will one day be gone anyways. Friends, that's a truth that the Jews in Susa needed to see, and that's a truth that you and I need to grasp as well. If we, if we don't see that our true pleasure is found in God, if we're not rich towards God, the language Jesus uses, but instead we, we're, we're grasping after earthly pleasures as our ultimate goal, then we'll be tempted to do one of two things. We'll, we'll either despair that we don't get to enjoy all the things this world has to offer, I wish I had more. Why don't I have more? Has God forgotten me? Or we'll, we'll be tempted to assimilate into the earthly pursuits of pleasure, thinking they'll satisfy. Either way, we will end up just like the man in Jesus' parable. Empty. Not rich towards God. Friends, that's exactly what happens to King Ahasuerus in the end. So in a messy world that, that tells us we need more earthly pleasure... We're to find our true pleasure in God. Now as we read on, we see another characteristic of of Susa. A world of abusive power. So we have pride, we have pursuit of earthly pleasure, and then we have a world of abusive power. Look at verse 10. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded all those guys, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. 
But Queen Vashti refused to come to the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Right now, notice already, even before we get to this Vashti situation, we've seen hints at King Ahasuerus' heavy-handed leadership. We saw it back in verse 3. His party included his army. Right? This would have been similar to uh, you know, Nazi Germany parading all of their military power through the streets, or the USSR would do the same thing. Right? It's, a, it's a show of power. It's to say, I could crush you if I wanted to. Then, if you look back at verse 8, and this one's easy to miss, it's sort of hard to understand, but when the king is having his feast, he makes an edict. He makes it a law. There is no compulsion. Now, here's what that means. He essentially has a party, and he says, I have made it a law that you must have fun. And if you don't, there's going to be problems. He's prone to abuse his power. Then, we see it most clearly in this situation on full display with Queen Vashti. He drunkenly decides to command his wife to come and be paraded in front of everyone. And verse 11 tells us the reason. Because she was lovely to look at. Now friends, this isn't him saying, hey guys, thanks for coming to town for the party. I'd love you to meet my wife. She's, she's amazing. Let's, let's go see what she's doing. That's not what he's doing here. Instead, he is objectifying his wife. That's what verse 11 means, because she was lovely to look at. He wanted him and all of his friends to gawk at her beauty. We don't know all of what that entails, but it is, there is no way to see this as, you know, he gets no benefit of the doubt in this. He treats Vashti just like he does his palace, just like he does his party, his feast, and his army. A way to show off how great she is. He's an abuser here abuses his power. That's what the abuse of power is. Power in and of itself, power and authority, despite what you may hear, is not evil and wrong in and of itself. It is meant to be used for the good of others. But power is abused when it's used for selfish gain and for the harm of others. And that's exactly what Ahasuerus is trying to do here. And how does Vashti respond to all of this? She refuses. She refused to come. We don't know why. We're not given any details. We can suspect that she's just frustrated with a drunken attempt uh, by her husband to objectify her. We could probably assume this wasn't the first time something like this has happened. There may be other reasons. We just we aren't really we don't really know, and we don't know much about Vashti. I didn't list her as a main character because after this scene she's done, but she does stand up to him. What we are meant to see is that the, the flow, the literary flow of the text here shows us something. It's meant to show us something. We've been reading about this supposedly awesome king who has all the power in the world, right? That's what Ahasuerus wants his people to know. That's what he wants you and I to know. Who can compare to the authority and wealth of this great king? No one can stand against me, this man of pride. Yet, with one phrase... She refused. We see that the king's power is actually quite frail, right? He he has no power at all. She refuses to come. And how does he respond? He becomes enraged. He's like a toddler whose favorite toy has been taken away, right? If you never tried that, try it and you'll see what I mean. 
That's what happens when you realize your, your idol, everything you place your hope in, is actually a sham. You get angry. And so he is enraged. And at the advice of you know, this power-hungry advisory board, what does he do after this? He banishes Queen Vashti. And we're meant to see the foolishness of the king and his advisors as well. Look at verse 17. Here's why. It says, For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it pleasure the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before the king Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. You hear, the, you hear what the guys are saying? <laughs> They're like, we can't let this get out. This, it, it's meant to show us how dumb they are. They go, we can't let this get out to the rest of the, the, the nation because then all of the women... We'll take a stand against abusive power. We don't want that happening. So what do they do? They send out an edict to the entire nation. Right? And she is banished. Now as we take a step back, we see that this is true not just in Persia. Not just stories we read about in the Old Testament. It's also something we see in our own world, in our own lives, right? The abuse of power, the use of it for selfish gain. Ever since the fall of man in Genesis 3, the temptation has been to pridefully take power and authority and twist it to benefit ourselves. In marriages, in parenting, in all sorts of relationships with employers, and the most obvious one for us would be political leaders, right? Kings and leaders, as I've talked to many friends over the last few years about political issues in our nations, Christians and non-Christians, friends on both side or neither side of the aisle, the consensus is the same. What a mess, right? Look at, look at all the misuses of power in leadership, the abuses for selfish gain. This isn't the way it should be. This is not the picture God gives for us. And I wonder if the, the Jews in, in Susa would have thought of a passage like 2 Samuel 23 at the end of David's life. David was a sinner for sure, but overall was a good and humble king. 2 Samuel 23 says this, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. God's people in Susa would have said, we have nothing like that here. Think of what Jesus would later say. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So, Friends, as we look at the world of Susa and Persia, and King Ahasuerus' world and Esther, as we look at our own world and maybe even our own lives, we're tempted to say in discouragement, what a mess. 
What a mess of pride and earthly pleasure and abuses of power. But this messy world is also a world of God's providence. Now, we've got to read between the lines of this text to see this. There's no mention of God here. But think of this. Without a proud, pleasure-seeking king, there would, would have been no extravagant feast. Without the extravagant feast, there would have been no drunken request for Vashti. Without the refusal of Vashti, who was then banished, there would be no need for a new queen. Just how the chapter ends. And because the king is obsessed with the display of beauty, he will choose the most beautiful woman he could find. And in God's providence, who would that be? Esther. Esther would step into that role. And without Esther, there would be no one to plead on behalf of God's covenant people. And without that pleading, God's covenant people would have been destroyed. This chapter is setting us up to see God's providential work, his purposeful sovereignty even in the mess. He is working even when you can't see it. John Flavel gives an illustration of this. He says, providence is like a curious piece of tapestry, which is like a you know, big, beautiful rug, made of a thousand shreds, which single appear useless, but put together, they represent a beautiful history to the eye. Friend, do you trust that God is working in the messy shreds of this world and in your life, even when you can't see it? That's the question. If you're, if you're discouraged by the mess, the pride, the earthly pleasures, the misuses of power, then friend, you need to enlarge your view of God and his sovereignty. If you look at a mess of life and say, I can't see how God is working in this. Listen, I understand I've been there, but if that's what you think, then your God is too small. You need a bigger view of God. He has not forgotten. He is working. Is it according to your timetable? No. Of course not. You're not God. Is it according to your plans? No, absolutely not. You're not God. He is. Friends, we just finished our series through Romans 8. Let's not forget the promise of verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. God takes those shreds and weaves them together into a beautiful tapestry. And here's something practical for you to do to help you reflect on this in your own life. God's providence in the mess. Sit down in the next week or so and write down a list of surprising things in your life that God used to bring about good. And actually try and list them chronologically. Someone exhorted me to do this a couple weeks ago, and I, I got to 31 things on this list. And I know there's more, but I was just tired, so I stopped, right? And you, this thing led to this. This move here led to this meeting this person, this, and then I came to Christ, and then I met my wife, and then I'm here. You know, all of these sort of things. And you know what's so interesting about them? About 75% of those things on the list were extremely discouraging in the midst of them, right? Like, I don't like this. How could God work through this? But looking back, I see the tapestry that God was weaving. That's what God's doing in Esther, and that is what he is doing always in his world for the good of his children. 
Now, there's, there's another way God's working behind the scenes here. This profile of King Ahasuerus in chapter 1 is, is written like a satire. It satirizes the king. The king and his fellow Persian elites are shown to be these sort of drunken, entitled, insecure fools. And at the end of the day, the one who's supposedly the authority over all things really has no power at all. Just from the word of his wife, we see that it's all in shambles. He's not nearly in control as he thinks he is. And the author, the unknown author, likely a group of Jewish scribes, is showing us something that's common all throughout the Bible. Psalm 33, 10 and 11, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Psalm 2.4 says this, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. It's not to say God laughs at the evil that comes from them, but he laughs at the silly idea that anyone could think that they're in control of their world. God is in control. And as we read through the rest of the book, we'll see that this kingdom and its king are mere instruments in the Lord's hands. That's all that King Ahasuerus is. And guess what? Ten years later, King Ahasuerus is dead. And where is the kingdom of Persia in those 127 provinces now? It's gone. Yet Jesus is king. This is true of every earthly king in the Bible. And when you and I read of them, we're meant to see their insufficiency. We're meant to to, to not fear the powers of this present world. And we're meant to look to the true God, the true king, and place our hope in him. We're meant to long for the greater king who will come. King Jesus. A king who did not rule in pride, but humbled himself. Living a life of righteousness that we couldn't live. Dying a a death that a sinner like you and I deserve to die. Not him. And then rising from the dead that all who believe in him may have eternal life. That's our true king. Humble King Jesus. He's a king who didn't live for earthly pursuit of, of pleasure. Didn't live selfishly. He came that we may know the true and ultimate pleasure of life with him. So we don't look at the pleasures of the world and say, I wish I had that. No, we say his love is better than wine. He is the bread of life. He is the living water. He satisfies the longing of our souls. He's a king who, yes, he rules in power and authority, but he doesn't abuse it. He willingly laid down his life for his sheep. And friends, if you want to see the picture of God's work in this messiness of our sinful world, then look to the cross and resurrection of Jesus. What seemed at first to be a terrible failure, Jesus died. He was murdered. How can any good come from this? What seemed to be a terrible failure by the providence of God is actually the greatest act of loving redemption in all of human history. Through Christ's death and then resurrection, he wove the tapestry of salvation. And that is what he is doing. We're looking back and seeing glimpses of it in Esther. And it comes to culmination in the cross of Jesus Christ. So friends, when you and I are tempted to despair, when we look around and see the messy, bleak picture of the world around us, a world of pride and not humility, a world of 
earthly pleasure and not delight in God, a world of power being abused. It's then that we must look to Christ in faith and see that even in all of this mess, God is providentially working. He has not forgotten us. Let's pray together.